Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly women's agenda podcast. In today's episode, it is International Women's Day. But before we plough into the purple cupcakes, let's talk more about what we really need to do to get shit right for women. And a special interview coming up with Labor MP and member for Reed, Sally Situ. Thanks for listening. This is episode three of The Crux, recorded on the 8th of March, 2023. My name is Tala Lambert, and I'm the editor of Women's Agenda, and I'm joined by Women's Agenda's contributing editor and all-round legend, Georgie Dent. How are you? I am good, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here with you. It is always lovely to see you. So it is International Women's Day, and suffice to say, we have a lot to say. Um, but first, let's start with the wins. Uh, G, have you got a win for us this week? Can we talk about the epic tool launched by your organisation, The Parenthood? I would love to talk about this tool, and I would also like to say that I have historically had a bit of a complex relationship with International Women's Day. I have found the gap between the sort of rhetoric and the reality on gender equity to be a little bit confronting. Now, because of that, I was sort of of the view that I know there are so many people who actually want to do things to shift the dial. And there are so many individuals and organisations that are doing things to improve the status of women um, Mm. and girls. But I decided this year that at the Parenthood, there's one group of women that we really, really wanted to turn up for. And I should say that this shouldn't just be women. But I'm talking about early childhood educators and almost 97% of early childhood educators are women. And aside from being the most gender segregated workforce in the country, they're also among the lowest paid. And this is a bit of a crisis point because early educators are leaving at a really alarming rate. So there are currently 20,000 staff vacancies in early learning across the country. Now, every unfilled position affects between six and 12 families. So 20,000 vacancies is a big issue and we've been campaigning for a pay rise for early educators for a really long time, um, as have lots of other people. But I thought this is something that in less than two minutes you can jump on. We've created a tool where you can send a letter to your local member and say early educators' wages are an issue that matters to us. Mm. And, again, it shouldn't be about women supporting women, but the reality is early educators are predominantly women and we know it is the participation and work and opportunities of women that are impacted when they can't access and or afford early mm-hmm. learning that they need. So that's my win. And I've got to say the response has been we only launched it yesterday, but we've already had hundreds of people send off letters to their members and politicians know that this is a problem, but mm-hmm. the more people they hear it from, the better. I think it's genius. I think it's so genius because, I mean, essentially it is enabling parents to advocate on this issue, which I don't know a parent that doesn't feel incredibly strongly about the fact that early childhood educators are so rorted at the moment. Um, But the reality is also that during your day, it is really hard to find half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever you need to write a compelling letter to an MP to advocate for change. So I think that this is just hitting the nail on the head. I did it this morning for myself and for my partner. It is super easy. It really does take two minutes. Yeah, it's a genius campaign. I I love it. And I hope that those members will read these letters and actually start to do something about this because it's ridiculous. I think in that Instagram reel you put yesterday around, you know, the rates that childhood educators start on Mm. in the industry and 
it sickens me to my core that, you know, you have these amazing qualified educators starting at like $23 an hour. Like, what is that? That's just, you could get a better wage at McDonald's. Well, I mean, and this is the issue that we've got is early educators are leaving because they can get better pay in things like retail and Mm -hmm. they can get not just better pay, but they can get less stress. But also, I mean, a lot of early educators, A, the wage is so poor that it's really hard for them to live on, but also B, they feel like that wage reflects a lack of valuing. Mm. And so, you know, at the parenthood, we're really keen to change both of those things. And there are lots of people who are on board with this as well. Like we need the pay to improve, but we also need to recognise the full extent and value of the work that early educators do as education. And yeah, I mean, Mm. the the wages are appalling. Um, Just today I was speaking, I actually spoke at an event and there were about 850 people in the room. And one of the people, I spoke about this issue, about wages for early educators. And one of the men who came up to me afterwards said, look, his wife um, is a preschool teacher. Um, And in New South Wales, a preschool teacher with a bachelor degree earns 30% less in a preschool Mm. than they would if they went to the primary school. And I've got an aunt who that is exactly her situation. She's worked as a preschool teacher for over 35 years. If she was at the primary school, she would have earned 30% more. That is Mm. a huge ask for people and people are doing it. But then the other issue we've got is as more early educators are leaving, it's increasing the stress on the educators that are remaining. And Mm. one of the other quite terrifying statistics is that at the moment 16.4% of long daycare centres are operating with a waiver because they haven't got Mm. enough staff that they're required to have. In Queensland and Western Australia, one in four long daycare is operating with a waiver because they don't have enough staff. Now, you can imagine what that does then for the staff that are remaining, the rates Mm. of burnout and the stress, it just increases. So then it's this vicious cycle. And we all have a vested interest in fixing this because if we don't have early educators, children miss out parents miss out and employers miss out. The disruption mm-hmm. to employers if parents can't come to work is huge and that's it's a really real risk right now. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Okay, so I want to go quickly to my win this week, which goes to Dr Sophie Scamps um, and a new bill she proposed to Parliament or introduced to Parliament this week, which seeks to end the Jobs for Mates debacle. Um, So SCAMS' legislation will push for a transparent and independent process for major government public appointments, including the creation of a public appointments commissioner who would be charged with ensuring politicians remain at arm's length. Wouldn't that be nice during the recruitment and appointment process? It would also establish departmental uh, independent selection panels, which would be overseen by a parliamentary joint committee And the idea is to stop a culture that currently sees governments and ministers handing lucrative portfolios and and positions to their their mates, which we know has been happening for a very long time. I just feel like Sophie Scamps, who I actually had the pleasure of interviewing her last week at an event in Sydney around climate change, but I just think she really is sticking to her guns on her election promises and a platform that she, you know, dedicated to climate and integrity. Gee, any thoughts on this? Yeah, look, it's interesting because I I was at another International Women's Day event um, earlier this week and Lee Sales was the guest speaker and she was talking about trust and integrity. And, you know, she said, really, integrity is about doing what you say you're going to do. 
And I think that that is something that we know that so many of the independents that got elected were elected on a platform around integrity, around equity, around climate. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Like these were the platforms that got people elected because a whole lot of Australians have been looking at what's been going on and have just realised it's not working well enough for enough Mm. of us. And I think this is one area where Sophie Scomps has been really consistent and committed to saying integrity matters and we don't just give high-paying, influential, important jobs to people that we want in those roles so they do what we want. We want to ensure that the right people are appointed to positions and that there's a transparent process. Mm. And I think that you know, one of the strengths of the so-called teal independence is they all do have a really clear mandate. And we know that in politics, there's always going to be, there's going to have to be sort of compromises and not everything is always going to go the way you want. But I think every time these independents are sort of standing up and being really constructive and putting solutions forward on issues that they got elected on, you know, that's Mm. exactly how we want our political process to work. Yeah, 100%. One thing that I would like our political process to address better is climate change. And we have just spoken quickly about how the Teals are doing that, but obviously a lot more needs to be done there. And that kind of leads to our new report that we officially launched today, but after a soft launch in Canberra at the Press Club last week, the report is called The Climate Load. And it's called The Climate Load because we looked at it as another hidden and very insidious load that women are carrying, much like the mental load that we all know and love. Um, We looked at the social and health emergency climate change really is for women and and girls and the role on impacts of climate disaster and how devastating those impacts are going to be as these events grow in scale and frequency. Last week marked one year on from the Lismore floods and I know you grew up there. How was that for you? Yeah, look, I I did grow up in Lismore and my family are still in Lismore and we've got lots of sort of really beloved friends um, who live there. And I definitely had and still do have a little bit of survivor guilt for having not been there when it happened. I know from what I saw and, and what I heard that the impact on the community was absolutely devastating and that that is ongoing. So, you know, we know that as a community, you know, a lot of people, particularly those who lost houses in their businesses, a lot of the houses that were lost were the more affordable houses and people were Mm. living there because that's what they could afford. So we know that we're talking about a community with a lot of people that were on a lower income and by virtue of that have literally got so much less of a buffer to take Mm -hmm. that on. And, And what it was was it was traumatic and it was scary and livelihoods were literally washed away and the disruption to the community and the sort of ongoing damage, it's actually quite hard to fathom. And I think at the time, one of the messages that I heard loud and clear from people in the community was they really did feel like they were abandoned and they were doing it on their own. You know, it really was community members turning up for other community members. Yeah, absolutely. I think living up this way, you know, I live in Pottsville. Parts of Pottsville did flood. Thankfully, my home didn't flood, but my street did flood. And certainly, you know, these effects a year on and the consequences of what happened, they're not going anywhere, you know. There's still so much work to be done. 
you know, my partner works in Lismore. He sees the devastation there still and they are still rebuilding that community. But then there's also the stress of rebuilding, you know, a township that is only going to flood again. This isn't going to go away. Um, And those people that are living in Lismore, but also in other parts of the Northern Rivers, in Chindra, in Mwilambar, in Pottsville, in Tweed, you know, there are so many people that are living precariously at the moment, knowing that these events are only going to to grow um, in scale and, and frequency, as I mentioned. And this report that we've released, it was a culmination of different pieces of research that we have found and, and we've really looked into this space and we've spoken with experts, we've spoken with women working on the front line, we've spoken with people that were carrying immense personal and, and uh, care loads during this period. And some of the things that we've found around the uptick in family and domestic violence, in gaps around disability support, the rise in homelessness, in insecure living, um, alarming surges in physical and mental health decline, and an immense toll on feminized care industries like the early childhood sector. Some of the educators that I interviewed in the Northern Rivers, for instance, reported sickening experiences of dealing with children and families who were clearly traumatized after the floods. They had educators who had lost homes, but they were also dealing with families who had lost homes and those who had witnessed other atrocities because we know that people did die in these parts as well. They were forced to pick up the load in ways that they are just not trained or supported to do. And that support never came either. You know, a lot of them were talking about how the government had said that they would be sending psychologists on a regular basis to meet with the educators and that never really amounted to anything. You know, they might have met with someone on a really ad hoc basis and then it just died off. So, gee, again, I think this goes back to the load that, you know, these women are carrying, largely women, I should say. What do you think is the answer there? I think the reality is that early childhood educators are really at a vulnerable interface. You know, they, I mean, I I have said this before, our children are now all at school, but, you know, our three girls were all at early childhood education and care for um, really from when they were one until they started school in some capacity. And the early childhood educators were probably the people who knew our family the most. And they were the ones that, you know, the days where I would turn up with a toddler that was in the middle of a meltdown who was in her pyjamas because she did not want to get dressed. The early educators see our lives warts and all and that is one of the things that makes them so amazing at what they do because they see you at this vulnerable time, they know your child, they know you, they step in and the role is so much more than just sort of physically keeping an eye on little people. It is actually meeting the emotional and social needs of little people and part of that is also meeting the needs of the parents who walk in the door or the caregivers that walk in the door. So even when things are going well, the full load that an early childhood educator is carrying is enormous because the stuff that I was just talking about there, that's literally just the sort of, that's the reality of family life, but that is not the additional trauma. So when you have got, you know, early educators have got in their services on any given day, they've got children that are coming from domestic violence situations. They've got families that are dealing with all sorts of challenges. They are not supported and resourced well enough to do that job as well as they could be, but they're certainly not supported and resourced 
to carry that additional load. And that's why, I mean, we know that one of the most effective ways that we've ever been able to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous children, it is in the early years. So what we've seen from some amazing community-controlled, Aboriginal-led early childhood development services where there is trauma-informed care for children and for parents and it is a wraparound service, the outcomes for children in that setting are vastly um, improved. And Mm -hmm. that is when we actually invest in ensuring that the educators and the allied health professionals that are around those children and around those family are culturally sensitive, they're inclusive, but they're trauma-informed to actually recognise the needs of that community. And the truth is the community of Lismore um, and the surrounding areas, but also all of the communities that we've seen affected by floods, affected by bushfires, that is a very real level of trauma that families and children are living with and early educators are at the coalface of of trying to support those families and those children and we don't pay them well enough to do that and we're certainly not providing them and their communities with the additional support, whether it's psychologists, whether it's um, social services, whether it's support workers, we're not doing those things and so it just makes the job that much harder. Mm. I think what this report has really brought home to us is that climate change across the board is not being examined through the lens of gender at all or at least adequately Um, and the risk of not doing so quickly uh, is really seismic because it is a health crisis an emergency crisis that is really uniquely impacting women in a number of ways. So please go and check out that report that's up now on women's agenda and share it as widely as possible because it's really important. Okay, G, I want to move on to my interview this week with the formidable Sally Situ, who's the federal member for Reid, who was elected last year. Sally wrote a piece for women's agenda that's up today reflecting on progress in parliament and now majority female place with more cultural diversity than we've ever seen before. She credits her maternal grandmother, her ama, for the sacrifices she made and the Labour women past and present who have helped her pave the way for a girl from Cabramatta of Lao and Chinese heritage and a good public education to become a sitting member of federal parliament. Sally, in your first speech to Parliament, you noted the symbolism of standing as an elected official on the 40th wedding anniversary of your parents' Australian citizenship. What was that moment like for you? Uh, It was really powerful um, because I kind of talked about my family's story, um, but if you really think about how significant it was for them, they left their homeland partly because... um, they weren't able to freely be who they were and even when they came to this country they still had carried that fear of being able to speak out openly and some of my earliest um, memories about politics were trying to talk to my mum about who she voted for in the 93 elections and she had turned to me and she said "Um, never talk about politics and never tell anyone who you're voting for. That was the kind of level of concern and fear that they had and it had carried over even after coming into Australia and living here for quite a number of years. So you can imagine then 
what it means for them to have their daughter publicly, so publicly, nailing her colours to the mast about, you know, what she wants to see for this country and, and the political views and values that she has, what a significant shift it is in their mindset. Um, and so that that's why um, it was so powerful for me. I mean, the other piece that was so powerful is that, you know, I was able to show to my parents that this is a country that really has embraced and accepted them. It's an electorate that's voted for me. I was very frank with my background and who I was. And for me and for my parents, it was a particularly powerful moment because of both of those threads. Yeah, 100%. And I want to go back to the audacious dream that you referred to of running for Reid and being elected. What was the catalyst for you making that decision? I've always been interested in politics and part of that interest has been because I know the impact of good governments and the policies that they make. I know firsthand the impacts that that has because of my own personal story. My family was able to succeed in this country because of decisions of successive governments and, you know, across the aisle. In my first speech, I talked about the fact that it was a coalition government that decided to welcome refugees from Indochina into this country and you know, that had a profound impact on our life. But then it was also Labor governments that introduced things like Medicare, good public education, and they were fundamental to making sure that we were able to build a successful life here. And so if I see all the the impacts that those policies had on me, you want to make sure that that is available for everyone in this country. And um, something that I've been thinking about quite a lot is that my parents, when they came here 40 years ago, there were opportunities that are available to them, like a good, decent job. And they, they both worked in factories because um, they had very little formal education and they didn't really speak the language here. But they had good, good, secure jobs that paid pretty well considering. Um, and then they were able to afford to buy a little townhouse for themselves five years after arriving in this country, and they still live in the same place today. But if I think about their story and all the opportunities that were available to them at that time, and I speed forward 40 years till now, I wonder if those opportunities would still have been available to them. And I don't think so. Um, Would they have been able to find good, secure jobs that were well paid given their lack of formal education? I don't think so. Would they have been able to afford to buy a place so soon after arriving in this country? Absolutely not, especially in Sydney. So that was something that I'd been thinking about. And then when I had my own son, those thoughts were really playing on my mind. But the big piece is, you know, thinking about the sort of world that I was going to leave him. And critical to that was to make sure that we were acting on climate change And I could not sit back and not participate and do something about that um, because I could see the world that we were leaving him. In the very few years that he's been alive, he's lived through the 2019 bushfires and they stretched on for months. He's also lived through the flooding and rain that we had last year. All of these things are going to become more frequent and more severe. And I just really wanted to be part of making 
change in that space in my own little way. So I guess those two things coming together was the catalyst, but ultimately it needed some people to really push me and prompt me and make me believe in in a bigger role for myself because they were the ones that said, you know, you ought to do this, you'd be great at it. And so it all came together at the right time for me. Mm. I mean, I don't think that they're wrong at all. But look, you also, um, in the first speech to Parliament, you also spoke about the importance of acknowledging Australia's First Nations people, learning from them and enshrining their voice in the Constitution. What would your key message be to Australians ahead of the referendum later this year in initiating a voice to Parliament? Um, I think there is such a unique opportunity for us as a country to let people know how big-hearted and generous we are. So the voice to Parliament, um, it is of particular importance to First Nations people, absolutely. It is about recognising them in our constitution. It's about making sure that we consult them on the policies that will affect them. And it's something that they've been asking for for a really long time, for years now. And so I think it's the right thing to do. But The symbolism of that, if we as a country can come together and say um, we think this is the right thing to do, I think that has flow-on benefits for so many other communities. Um, It means that we are um, a generous country, one that wants to recognise and celebrate all the communities in our society. And I have been speaking to different multicultural community groups in my electorate um, because it it is very diverse. And this is the thing that we keep coming back to is that if we can show such generosity of spirit and graciousness to First Nations people, that same feeling can also then extend to other communities who may not necessarily have felt that in our society. So, you know, our Muslim communities have gone through um, particularly difficult time, but if they can see that we are a country that is willing to acknowledge painful pasts but also try to create this more acceptable and welcoming place, that has flown benefits for people like them, for people in the Chinese community, for our subcontinent community, because if we can do it for First Nations people, we can do it for everyone. Yeah. I want to talk about this opinion piece that you've penned for Women's Agenda today and it is reflecting on International Women's Day and you spoke about your maternal grandmother, your ama, and the opportunities she afforded you and the rest of your family through her own sacrifice to choice. Do you feel this is a common story or experience for migrant Australians still? I think it is actually a common story, not not just for migrants, because um We all perhaps have a grandma, a nonna, a nan who we know didn't get to live to her full potential. Uh, She grew up during a time when women weren't given an opportunity to go to university or they weren't given opportunities to pursue the careers that they wanted to pursue. And I think that so many of us know that they would have been amazing lawyers or doctors. These are women who were so capable but had their wings clipped and their worlds contained. And I um, think about my own grandmother because um, she's exactly like that. 
I saw how capable she was. She was a widower who was raising eight kids on her own. She had to move country twice. So imagine having to set up in a new place and learn the language and get to know every how everything works, but do that twice. So I know how capable she was. But if you were to write down who she was on paper, you know, what job she had, it'd be a short paragraph. But it is not a good reflection of who she was. And I just feel sad that she didn't get to contribute fully and be the person that she perhaps wanted to be because of the constraints that society had put around her and her generation. Yeah, it's interesting you raise that point. I mean, my own grandmother passed away last year and those were the exact... There were the exact sentiments that were brought up in her funeral was just that, you know, she had so much potential. There was, you know, and I think that that's exactly right. The women of that generation really had so much to offer and just um, so little capacity to do so. So, yeah, exactly right. What do you think your ama would say to you right now, knowing where you've gotten to and seeing you as as the sitting member for Reid? Uh, she, I think, would still be quite gobsmacked. Um, I think I'd need to explain what this all means. Um, and I think she would have been totally astonished. In fact, we still have um, relatives overseas and they are totally bewildered by how this has happened. And it's so funny because um, my mum has friends who live all around the world um, because they've fled Laos and gone to different parts of the world. And she'll get she'll get messages on Facebook and be like, oh, is this your daughter? And it has come from someone that she hasn't spoken to for 20 years who lives in Canada, but it has been shared around in their groups. One of their own kids has been able to rise up into um, federal parliament in Australia. And so there's just um, a sense that this country has accepted us um, as migrants. But the, the other point, I guess, to make on that is that we ought to step up and play a role. So there's a responsibility on people like me to contribute to this country, to have a say, to participate in the political debate, and to really try to shape this country into into what we want it to be. Yeah. And you made a point around some of the policy, I guess, that is kind of immensely progressive in this country at the moment and um, and that's being put forward by the Labor government right now. And one piece of legislation is the increase in paid parental leave to 26 weeks. How transformative is that? And, you know, what kind of impact and difference will that make to the lives of working families? So I, I'm going to pull you up on two things, right? So um, when you say it's progressive, I don't think it is because we were one of the few countries at the tail end of um, the OECD countries to um, introduce a, a statutory pay parental leave. So other countries around the world have done this. And when it came in, the significance of it, I think, like I recognised it at the time when it was introduced, but I didn't feel it until I had my own son and I was able, because of my employer leave as well as the government leave, I was able to take a full year off to spend with him and I don't know how I would have done it otherwise. Like That was the most rewarding but also the toughest year of my life and if I didn't have that financial flexibility 
I just think it would have been so much harder. And I'm so proud now to then be able to be in a government that is making that paid parental leave scheme even better. We're making it better because we're extending it to 26 weeks, which I think is really important. But the other key to it is we're making changes so that there is greater incentive for the partner to take leave. And I think that's a really important piece to this as well because parenting for those in um, two-parent households It is about both people stepping in, especially now, and we want to do everything we can to be encouraging both parents to be involved. Yeah, I'm actually very glad that you called me out on um, the use of progressive there (laughs) because I think that that is often how we are, I guess, fed policy lines like that. And while it is progress and while it is an important step forward, it certainly isn't exactly where we need to be with paid parental leave. Um, And I think it's just refreshing to hear a sitting member actually, I guess, say that. Um, (laughs) So thank you. Um, And look, I want to talk about a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice that you talked about through a, a social post earlier this year about taking time away from your son and that's a sacrifice that a lot of politicians have to make. And it's, again, not something that we typically hear much about. I mean, certainly not from any male politicians, for starters. But I want to talk to you about what kind of compelled you to write that post and whether or not it is going to become more ubiquitous for parents that are politicians to kind of make those statements and be open about that. So I am someone that um, wears my heart on my sleeve um, unashamedly and so that tweet thread came about because it was just a really tough morning and I didn't want to sugarcoat it. This is an amazing job and I love it but there are also some challenges that come with it and it's mainly my family that have to wear the brunt of that, my son and my husband and so it isn't easy. And it was interesting because when I put that tweet up, I got a lot of feedback from those in Parliament House who were going through very similar things, um, politicians, but also staffers as well, and um, both male and female. So uh, a lot of the dads were coming up and saying, that they found it difficult being away from their kids. And actually lots of people were coming up to give me hot tips for <laughs> have you tried have you tried going on Facebook Messenger? Because there's this like game app that you can play with them when you're on. I think was just a reflection of the real experience of what it is like to be a federal politician. But it's also the experience for so many people in other jobs and industries, Um, people who have to work long hours, you know, shift workers. I think about those who have to travel a lot for work, you know, nurses having to work overnight, not being able to put their kids to bed. And this is the reality for so many parents and it's really hard But I think the other thing that it reminded me of was that it isn't something that we should shy away from either. So I knew fully well what my life was going to be like before I stepped into this role. So I did it with my eyes wide open. 
But I'm very lucky because I have a fantastic partner who has a job that allows him to have the flexibility to do a lot more of the parenting. But we've also got um, my brother who lives really close by. So they will take my son on a Monday night when I'm in Canberra. And we've got both sets of grandparents who are more than willing to chip in. And so I guess my point is that whilst I wish I could be home more, I'm also surrounded by all these amazing people who love my son and are willing to look after him as well. And he, I think, will be better for that, that he has the influences of his grandparents, his uncle and his cousins and and my husband. So whilst there is a bit of guilt there, um, I'm also very mindful that he's doing really well and he's surrounded by people who love him. Mm. Well, they don't say that it takes a village for nothing. Um, That's right. But let's, yeah, look, let's hope we have more real experiences shared openly by politicians. Uh, Sally Citri, thank you so much for joining The Crux this week. Oh, thank you. That was really lovely. Okay, so I love talking to women like Sally who really do symbolise a new frontier in politics. Um, Georgie, do you think that this new era, this new feeling that we have in Parliament and across the crossbench is is going to stay? I I genuinely do and I also have to say that um, my first encounter with Sally was actually um, when she was a candidate and we were doing an event with a number of um, talking about early childhood education and care and you know, she is a working mum and she knows the sort of, you know, importance of not just family being there to help, but also having access to early education and care because the pathway for any woman to any sort of opportunity, it's really hard if you haven't got access to early education and care or, you know, Mm. unless you live with your family nearby and they are willing and able and financially able to support you. We all need that. And so every time I hear someone like Sally speak, and she's certainly not the only one, but we do now have a number of people in Parliament who know intimately what it is like to actually juggle being the caregiver and raising a family and also having a career and turning up to Parliament and representing your constituents. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think just not being afraid to talk about, you know, the reality of what that means. Obviously, Sally spoke just briefly around that that tweet, noting, you know, how how taxing it was as a parent to be a sitting member of parliament and having spoken to her son and him really missing her that day. And I just feel like that's not a message that's been in politics for long enough. So it's refreshing. It is refreshing. And actually, I should say that the same week that she shared that was actually the the week that our youngest daughter was having a really tricky time at school in a new class with a new teacher. And I just was reminded once again when I had this very, very distressed little person that, you know, it physically hurt me and it's a load that you carry. And, you know, I I wrote something on LinkedIn about it and just said, you know, how many other working parents are out there today with a sort of slightly distracted mind and a bruised heart because we've got someone little or someone big, you know, parents of teenagers said the same thing. When you've got a child that's having a hard time, it's real. And I think it is amazing that we do have people like Sally who are in those positions who are happy to to say this is hard and this is how I'm coping with it. And I don't know if any of us are doing it perfectly, but I do know that by talking about the fact that it's messy and it is hard, 
we do make it easier for other parents who are finding it messy and hard. A hundred percent. Gee, I feel like we should wrap up here because we're ending on a very positive note for International Women's Day, which is, you know, quite nice for us and unprecedented, I would say. (laughs) But look, I'm just going to say this. One of the heartening things I've seen, obviously I said how we have decided at the Parenthood to go with a sort of action campaign, but I've also just really seen a much bigger sort of more substantive effort from individuals and organisations to actually use this not just as an opportunity to bring out the cupcakes, but actually talk about the systemic and structural barriers that are um, holding women um, Mm -hmm. back. And I, I do actually think that's a win which I will take. Yeah. No, I will take it as well through a, a, you know, a mouthful of purple cupcake. And on that note, I want to thank Georgie Dent for joining us on the podcast today and our lovely producer, Ali, who makes this podcast happen every week. And a reminder to everyone listening that you can check out all the stories that we've spoken about on Women's Agenda as well as subscribe to our daily newsletter that comes out mostly at lunchtime every day. And please do go and check out that report that we have on site. It's called The Climate Load. We will be sharing it widely as possible, but we ask that you do the same. And we will have Angela Priestley back next week in the hot seat. Thanks so much. 